You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. That music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter here in Davis, California. And you know, Don, it is the last day of November, and it's a beautiful, bright, sunny, gorgeous outside. Yeah. And tomorrow when our show broadcasts, it's going to be very different, isn't it? Yes. Usually we can record on a Wednesday and be fairly sure that Thursday will be pretty similar. Well, it's sunny, clear, sparkling, beautiful, and cold out there here in the Sacramento Valley. Temperature right now, as Lois and I are doing the broadcast, is 50 degrees. At least that's at the Sacramento Executive Airport. Pretty close to that here, I'm guessing. Going up to a high today of 58. It's a little colder than average for this time of year. If you go to weatherspark.com, they'll tell you that the December 1 average high is 58. Uh, we're going to be 58. Hey, look at that. But tonight is going to be raining, rain likely, 70% chance of rain Wednesday night and 43 degrees. Thursday, 100% chance of rain, half an inch or so. Looks like it's in the forecast, half an inch to an inch, depending on where you are in the valley. Fair bit of snow up in the mountains coming from this storm, and that's cool. Uh, 49 degrees will be the high, so that's almost 10 degrees below average for the time of year. This is a cold fairly fast-moving storm, pulling in some cold air with it. Chance of showers Thursday night, and then frost and patchy fog on Thursday on Friday morning, 30 degrees. Friday's only going to be 50. Again, about 10 degrees, 8 to 10 degrees below average for the time of year. Friday night, patchy frost, then a chance of rain, 31 degrees, but a rainstorm coming in Saturday. 80% chance of rain on Saturday. 50 degrees is only going to be the high on Saturday. 40, 40 degrees will be the low. So one of those kind of days. Saturday night, it'll be raining it just says rain not even 80 percent, just rain sunday showers likely 52 degrees so several degrees below average sunday night chance of showers mainly before 10 p.m then clearing up so patchy fog or frost in the morning low around 34 degrees a slight chance of lingering showers on monday with a high only near 52 monday night frost widespread 31 tuesday patchy fog widespread frost and 51 degrees as well so several degrees below average for this time of year a little bit of rain looks like if we add up the two storms that are heading our way inch and a half maybe that would be great a fair bit of snow in the mountains these are cold storms so remember cold storms don't give as much rain as warm storms but they do give snow and that's good for the drought and all those kinds of things we've been dealing with i should say we just had this morning the wednesday as we are doing this a very cold morning, the coldest of the year. Uh, we got to about 28 degrees here in the Dixon area for several hours. It hit 28 degrees around one or two in the morning and stayed there roughly until sunrise. And so that's several hours, two or three degrees below the temperatures at which some plants are injured. If you happen to follow along on the Davis Facebook group, uh, Gardeners and Homesteaders in Davis, I think is the official term of our Facebook group. I did see this coming, uh, the weather forecast three or four days ahead of time. What I look at is cold storm pulling cold air in behind it. That's more of a freeze event 
than a simple frost event. And a freeze event is where you might be concerned, and I did post about this, uh, enough about, let's say, a newly planted citrus, particularly a lemon or a lime, because they're a little more tender. A newly planted avocado, particularly if you're doing one of the ones that's a little more tender, like Fuerte or one of the Guatemalan types, but even a young Mexican avocado, the hardier types, just green wood, just new growth on it could be damaged. And of course, we expect damage coleus, impatiens, begonias, all those kinds of things. That's just part of the nature of our seasonal change. But the injury to the young citrus and avocados was something I wanted people to be aware of. And those of you who are stretching zone boundaries know that if you're growing a tropical hibiscus, okay, that's a plant that probably should have been closer to the house last night. And or inside, inside. Or in, that's a good thought, inside or under an overhang. We always talk about microclimates. Well, the ultimate microclimate is indoors, but <laughs> up against the house, up against an east-facing wall or south-facing wall with an overhang can make three to five degrees temperature difference, which can be three to five rather crucial degrees of temperature difference, as I think some of you may have just found out last night. Now, remember, cold injury is cumulative and reversible. And this is a one-night event. This was not a freeze like 1990 where it went on for 10 days or 1998 where it went on for seven days or 2005 where it went on for five days or 2013 where it went on for three days or 2017 where it went on for three days. Those all did significant injury. We also had warning. It was the same kind of thing. Cold air pulled in behind a cold storm. My staff person yesterday was we were getting ready to close up. And when we're closing up and we've got a freeze event scheduled for that night, we take a quick walk around the nursery yard. You know, did, did we happen to leave a house plant outside after watering it today? Are there still some succulents out there that we might be concerned about? Jade plants, aloe vera, some of the better known succulents, string of pearls. Those would be injured by being out in the open on a night when it's going to be that cold. And his question was, what's that What's that formula you told us a long time ago? Okay, it is. If at the time we're closing, 5.30, or a little later when you get home, 6.30, if it's in the mid-40s and the sky is clear, there's no air movement, so it's clear and still, it's going to drop one to two degrees an hour very rapidly, getting down to freezing, and we're almost sure to have a frost and possibly drop below that two to three degrees on a night like that. So mid-40s, cold air mass moving in, completely still and clear, you have a chance of some freeze injury. We've had questions about frost and things like that. I'm not concerned about a frost. A frost is just sparkly white stuff on the ground. I'm talking about a freeze where it gets below about 30 degrees. And if you are not good with remembering Don's formulas, you know, <laughs> I have the solution for you. Get on the National Weather Service and look, and they give you uh, little graphs, and it tells you what temperature it's going to be when for the they next do. They do. And, two, yeah, and I, I really prefer that to the news media coverage of cold weather events because they don't distinguish between a frost and a freeze. And so a very common question we get, like the first frost was predicted a couple of weeks ago. We've had a lot of a lot of frost in the month of November this year. We've had 14 of them on my farm in November, 14 frosty mornings. And still all my coleus near the house was fine. All the subtropical plants were fine because they're close to the house. So it wasn't 32 degrees where they are. It was 32 degrees out in the open, but you don't get this distinction between a frost and a freeze where you're, you're just getting sparkly stuff and it's 31 and a half degrees. Most plants that we're growing are absolutely fine with that. We might lose some of the things we expect like impatiens or coleus or whatnot. Didn't even lose those yet. This morning I did. My coleus is gone. So it gave me a good run. It looked great on the front porch all the way up until the morning of November 30th. And then I think it's safe to say I'll be sticking some cyclamen in those pots shortly. <laughs> 
Hey, we're celebrating 18 years here at KDR. 18 years? 18 years. Well, you know, I think we've been on... I think you and... I think you and I have been on since 18 years ago when KDRT first went on the air. Is that correct? I believe so. Yeah. And before that, we were on my television show and on, on the same station. So, so KDRT is local here. local public radio. It's uh, 95.7 FM broadcasting all the way to the city limits and broadcasting worldwide on KDRT.org. Well, it's our fundraising week, the big fall fundraiser we like to do November 28th through December 5th. If you like Davis Garden Show, if you like Jazz After Dark, if you like That's Life, if you like any of the other 29 locally produced independent programs of, um, what do we call it, uh, public affairs, news talk, like this, or music, incredible music over there at KDRT, over here at KDRT. Well, if you like all that kind of thing, head over to kdrt.org slash donate. Cater to- donate. They're going to donate? Cater.org slash donate. Donate. And if you click on the donate button there at cater.org, you will find all kinds of different ways you can give one time donation, monthly donation. I do want to mention if you donate $75 for the first time, we have a CD project called Holidays at the Hall. It's a limited edition CD or digital download as a thank you gift for donations of $75 or more. What is this? Well, the Davis Oddfellows annual holiday show. Thursday Live each December typically features several diverse local bands, each presenting and preparing an imaginative short set of seasonal songs. Well, KDRT's Jim Buchanan often features these live recordings on his December Live Tracks episode, and he's selected a sampling of these well-loved performances for the first live music CD project part of our fall fundraiser week. Sound Harvest, Volume 1, The Holidays at the Hall, contains eight songs ranging from Celtic to Klezmer, Jazz to Folk. It includes bands like Me and Him, The Muddy Waiters, as well as Misner and Smith, Calvin Handy, the Jazz Patrol, and the Davis Klezmer Orchestra. That's the eclectic nature of this community that produces KDRT 95.7 FM. If you like that kind of stuff, you want to get a copy of this amazing CD, kdrt.org slash donate. Uh, we get we get messages from listeners. We yep. answer them on the show. And sometimes we get replies from our answers. This is from Kevin, who is in Oakley. And he's the one who wrote to us about his autumn gold ginkgo tree that didn't have color. And we talked quite a bit about that last week. And he sends in a new note. Hello, just following up. My ginkgo did change color. <laughs> yes. I do agree with Don that it was drought stress, so I'll change how I water it, and I'll plant some plants nearby to help out as well, like Don said. The bark you spoke of is there, but I also have arborist wood chips, too, as my main mulch all around my yard. I did a layer of the bark about eight years ago. Then about two years ago, I added 10 yards of arborist wood chips, dropped off, and spread it over my yard. It has worked out great. Thank you again for all your advice. Signed, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. We're always happy to get feedback. And uh, if you want to send us a note, let us know how long it took you roughly and how many wheelbarrow loads to move 10 yards <laughs> of arborist wood chips, because that is the one impediment to the use of this free resource that I run into a lot. I mean, it's something if, if you're a follower of the Linda Chalker Scott on the Garden Professor's Facebook page and blog, she, of course, promotes arborist wood chips as the ultimate ideal mulch for a lot of reasons. They have moisture in them. It's not dry when you put it on the ground. There, things can grow right up into them and immediately start breaking them down and and 
essentially amending them for you into the soil. They're coarse, they're bulky. It's what she calls 3D mulch, three-dimensional mulch, big coarse chunks. So there's air in there. So even if it's piled up against the trunk of the plant, we don't recommend that, but it's got enough aeration that it's unlikely to encourage crown rot or root rot problems. As far as she's concerned, 10 inches is fine. You know, if you have some massive amount of it, a lot of people who listen to us and who read her blog say, I don't know what I would do with a truckload of arborist wood chips. It's 15 yards is typical, is what I'm told, is that when some, someone backs up there, you finally, you've signed up at chipdrop.com or you've you've harassed your local tree service until they finally just bring you their whole truckload. 15 yards, 27 cubic feet in a yard. So that's more than 400 cubic feet. Wheelbarrow holds two to three cubic feet. You can do the math. And when I was running a landscape contracting firm, one of the most challenging things for me to to estimate was how long it would take an average landscape laborer to load up two cubic foot wheelbarrows and three cubic foot wheelbarrows and wheel that mulch 100 yards or so or wherever it was going to go and get it all spread out and all cleaned up. It's time consuming. It's, um, it, it is a high volume of stuff. So if you're concerned about having too much when you do the chip drop thing and it arrives, next door is a great resource for this kind of thing. Get on there and tell your neighbors, we got 15 yards. I only need about five. So come on down, please bring a wheelbarrow or two or three. Um, and again, the other thing is it can be just piled deep. When we first bought our farm, there was a tree service who's a friend of mine. And he was looking for a place to dump his grindings every day because they do charge at the dump for that. And they really don't want them taking that stuff to the dump much better if it goes back into people's landscape. I'm out in the country and he could just back right up to the edge of our farm and dump it. And over the period of that, that first year we were here, he dumped it to the point that it was at least 12 inches deep of arborist wood chips all the way down one part of the county road. I went ahead and irrigated it just to get it to settle in and get some moisture on it. First of all, no weeds grew there because they were completely <laughs> buried. And then if you pulled that back to go in and plant some trees and shrubs, as we started doing, it was just the most amazing, richest stuff. You could you could find worms moving up into it. You would find beetles in there, all kinds of organisms living in there. And it was already amending the soil all by itself. So it's one, And it doesn't matter how deep it is. That's not a big problem. So don't be concerned about getting too much. I mean, don't bury plants that that you want. Don't smother a heuchera or some kind of perennial to the point that it can't have any sunlight. But other than that, you can pile it on the soil as deep as you want or keep a heap of it out on one side of the garden where you can take it out when you need it and dump some more arborist wood chips on weeds that have sprouted up. So you can't really have too much. But I do realize it's a big job when you get 15 cubic yards. So the other question that came up, and I think we answered this a few weeks ago, um, what is something that a home gardener can do that can be a good mulch, can shade out the weeds, can improve the soil? My answer then was bales of straw, which is something you can go to a local feed store and pick up. At least they can load it in your vehicle. Some of them will even deliver it. Or maybe you know someone with a pickup truck. They're fairly heavy. It's a two-person thing to move a, a bale of straw around unless you do it for you know for your livelihood. And um, that's another one, which you can pile as deep as you want. It was kind of funny a, a week or so after we talked about that on the radio show, I saw someone post on next door. Anybody need part of a bale of straw? I didn't realize how far it went. <laughs> so even that may be more than some people need. In which case, if you prefer to go down to a garden center, I know a good one. You can go in and you can buy stuff in a bag and put it on the ground. I would just suggest that compost is better than bark for most purposes, particularly if you're trying to improve the soil. Bark is great for paths. Compost is better for enriching the soil. Arborist wood chips or things like that that decompose at a reasonably fast pace are going to improve the soil. 
So arborist wood chips do make an excellent mulch. They may be a little impractical for people with a small yard because you tend to get 10 to 15 yards at a time. That's like several hundred cubic feet. But what we like about them is they're wet rather than dry. They immediately make a connection with the soil uh, because of that moisture and because of the cellulose that's there. There's lots of things that like to break down wood, especially when there's some moisture in it. So mycorrhiza will invade and earthworms will crawl up and go back down and they will gradually make your soil better. Whereas bark is more or less inert, as we say, although a great surface for walking on. Yeah, planting those plants out past the ginkgo. This is one of the things that Tree Davis, We were, uh, a week or so ago, we had our, our annual uh, fundraiser and thank you meeting out there at the Memorial Grove out on Shasta Drive. And part of what we were doing was giving tours, which you can also just walk out there and look at these, of the climate-ready landscaping. The plants that we're putting in, we're planting near the trees that we're putting in, working with the city, taking out turf or taking out areas that were originally slated to be in turf and planting instead low water plants, some native, some non-native, but plants that will bloom over a long period of time. And the reason that's beneficial for the trees nearby, I actually had an interesting question from someone, won't the roots of those plants compete with the new trees? Well, they could. Yes. If you plant something like a grass plant right next to a brand new tree that you've put in, the roots of the grasses will be more aggressive than the poor little tree. And we know that trees planted in turf, for example, are often stunted by as much as 30% by the root competition from the grass right up to the base of the tree. So nothing is within five or six feet of these new trees we're planting. But then we'll have a ground cover Zauschneria or California fuchsia out there. We'll have some deer grass over there. We have irrigation, drip irrigation going to these. In, in one case, we're actually using sprinkler irrigation because that's what's there, watering them efficiently, thoroughly, and effectively. And what that means is that as this poor ginkgo or the the oak tree that we've planted begins to grow, there's moisture nearby. Remember that roots will not grow into dry soil. They will grow only where there's adequate moisture for those really fine root hairs to push in and continue to expand outward. So part of the idea of uh, mulching is that retains moisture. Part of the idea of widening the watering basin or expanding the drip line, as we talk about frequently here, expanding the irrigation zone for the growing tree. That's part of it to make it so that the roots can expand out into what would otherwise be dry, unirrigated soil. If you put plants there and irrigate them, well, that'll get some moisture out there as well because you'll be watering the whole zone. So basically, it's sort of a watershed concept. And people keep sending me pictures. There was another one I got of another citrus. I'm beginning to call these my citrus desert pictures. Poor little citrus tree planted in a corner, watered correctly, seemingly, you know, X number of gallons a week and the frequency we had talked about in the poor little tree was just not growing. And it got sunburned in the heat wave and, you know, just isn't flourishing. And it's in a corner of the yard, completely surrounded by bark, not compost, not arborist wood chips by bark so you know not enhancing the soil in fact reflecting light this is a lighter colored bark and um the poor little tree was you know if you had a thermometer to measure the air temperature on a hot day in that little zone it's probably five or ten degrees higher than the measured air temperature at the local weather station because of the microclimate you've created with all those reflective surfaces the lack of irrigation and so on so watering past the tree the watershed concept is really important water the tree what it needs as I say at Tree Davis, when we're planting out where there's no irrigation, we're giving 10 to 15 gallons every two weeks. And I've said that's about half of what the trees would really like, but it's enough. It's enough to keep them going, getting them through the first summer or two. We're hand watering them for three years after planting 10 to 15 gallons each tree every two weeks. If you could give it 10 to 15 gallons once a week, 
That would be even better. And so that's what you do for the tree itself. But you also plan for its root growth out into the surrounding soil. And one of the simplest ways to almost inadvertently cause yourself to water out there is to plant things around it. Think of your trees and look at the watershed that's providing moisture for that existing tree. It's well past the canopy of the tree when it's established. And it should be past the canopy of the tree as it's growing so that the roots can get out and establish. Well, if you would like to send us a question, if you have a comment or a suggestion, or you, you want to know how to do something, feel free to email us. It's davisgardenshow at gmail.com. And we do get questions and we've got all kinds of uh, things to talk about. But first of all, it's almost December. It's December 1. What do you have for flowers in your garden in December? Seems like it's well, winter. Well, it does. And I have in front of me the December 2020 calendar page, which, well, Don does a calendar every year, which you can find, by the way, on the web, on his website, redwoodbarn.com for free. Uh, and it has lots of pictures of flowers that are blooming in December. Now we're only at December 1st, so we might not be getting to all of these yet, but you know, if I look down there in, in addition to the flowers, there's a couple of fruits. There's a Meyer lemon and a citrus mandarin that says, mm -hmm. pick me now. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about this Mandarin stuff. What's a man? What, well, what? let's back up, back up for a moment. The mm -hmm. 2023 calendars have just arrived at Redwood Barn Nursery. So next year's calendars just arrived. They're beautiful. Also, we sell Tree Davis calendars as a fundraiser for Tree Davis. So those are both there at the counter now available. And as usual, as per we've as we've done for years, the 2023 calendar will be available at redwoodbarn.com. All right, kids out there, you're allowed to go get the best quality printing paper you can and <laughs> tell your parents you're about to do something that's going to probably burn through a print cartridge. And you can print that out carefully. And then you can line it up and you can take some ribbon and you can fold that over the edge and you can staple that and you have an instant Christmas present. Absolutely. And it's a fun one. Yeah. Absolutely free from your standpoint. It was your parents' print cartridge that you went through. <laughs> so. And parents, if you want a great gift for your kids, if they like flowers and gardening, you can do the same thing for them. <laughs> well, so we'll talk about the citrus in a moment, but December is a funny month here in California. This is when uh -huh. uh, we go out and we take pictures of things that are still blooming from the summer. Even though we had a pretty sharp frost this morning, there's still things blooming out there that, you know, you would not expect to be because we tend to have very warm autumns here, even with the number of frosts we had in November. And we've had 14 frosts by my count on my farm in the month of November, which is a fair bit more than we normally get. Those are just light frosts, and it's still warm in many locations out there. And a lot of those summer things are still blooming. So I'm just scrolling through my photos on my phone. And, oh, look, here's a fuchsia in full bloom. Here in the backyard is a brugmansia, the uh, the angel's trumpet. Uh, here are a whole bunch of daisies blooming. There's lots of daisies that bloom in the winter. Winter is actually a good time for a lot of daisies. And what I like about them, I'm looking at five pictures, and only one of them doesn't have something on the flower taking advantage of the pollen and nectar you bee, mean a bee a bee or in one case a hoverfly which looks a lot like a bee a lot of people confuse them with bees these are entirely beneficial insects they love daisies and there aren't that many things blooming in december but a lot of things in the daisy group do i'm what i'm looking at is the mexican marigold tagetes lemonii it's a winter blooming marigold it was very very aromatic foliage and the flower doesn't look like your classic you know seed catalog marigold but they're bright yellow and they're in full bloom right now they don't care if it's 29 or 30 degrees out there they're perfectly cold hardy with that so are gazanias so is golden bush daisy uriops 
pectinatus, oh, the old name. That's my favorite winter daisy. It's yeah, just, it's bright and yellow. And it goes forever and ever and ever. It's wonderful. It starts blooming in October, typically, as the weather begins to change a little bit. Blooms all the way into May or even June. When it gets hot, the plant is still there. It's a nice green, evergreen plant. It simply uh, stops blooming when it's above in the, oh, the 90s, I would say. So it's blooming typically October through May, just like the gazania. So daisies give us a lot of bloom. And they, the important thing about this is we have a place where gardens are still active in the winter. It's not like we're buried in snow and there's nothing going on out there. It's it's, uh, there's still lots of bees and um, and uh, beneficial hummingbirds. insects, hummingbirds, hummingbirds. Uh, little sparrows and small birds hopping around in the in the foliage, enjoying themselves. So yes, yeah, so hummingbirds, as you know, uh, and we like to emphasize, there's at least one species that overwinter lives here in the winter time. And so there even are you... a couple that are resident, and and the uh, Anna's hummingbird has mm-hmm. their babies in January. Hmm. So they're nesting right now. They're, they're nesting. Making nests. So they need some dense, overgrown places on the property, which I certainly can provide them with. And they need flowers. And I don't ever put hummingbird feeders out, but I see lots of hummingbirds going to, oh, I don't know, that fuchsia that's blooming in December, but also going to the daisies. And so we want to emphasize whenever I'm talking with people about hummingbirds and butterflies, they all think about the tubular flowers and the red and the, you know all that all the checklist of stuff you've been given about what attracts a hummingbird. Watch them in a garden center we get a lot of them at our nursery. Watch them in a garden that has lots of flowers. They haven't seen that list. <laughs> they haven't seen those rules of what they're supposed to be going to. I think there are flowers that they go back to more. This is just my guess. I'm not a bird guy. But they go back to more perhaps because they're getting a nectar reward from that one. But they'll try anything that's blooming. They'll go to cyclamen, dianthus, daisies in particular. And the daisy flower is the, the first thing that drew them onto our property was sunflowers when we planted those many, many years ago when we first moved here a daisy those are giant daisies aren't they yeah Something. they're a giant daisy and a daisy is an inflorescence it's a whole bunch of little tiny tubular flowers smashed together in one great big structure and so a hummingbird thinks it's a buffet you know they're just one flower after another so there's lots of things that you can get that are blooming at this time of year here in sunset zone 14 8 9 14 or usda zones 9a 9b and 10 we have flowers through the winter here but you were mentioning some harvestable things down there on the bottom yeah, um, we have a Meyer lemon picture, and then we have it says citrus mandarin pick now. Yeah. So is that pick now December first, or pick now December thirtieth, or all the way through? Mandarins themselves, the the classic mandarin. Uh, when a, when a customer walks in and says, "I want a mandarin orange," I tend to assume they mean they want a Satsuma mandarin, Owari Satsuma mandarin, the easy to peel, very juicy, seedless tangy sweet mandarin that is classic here in California. We generally don't start picking those until late November until we've had enough cold nights to reduce the acidity and increase the sweetness. Remember that cold temperatures often increase the sugar content of many things, ranging from kale and Brussels sprouts to mandarins. Uh, there's a, there's a, a metabolic change in the plant below certain temperatures and you get more sugar, less acidity. So early in November, they're too tart, although the sugar content might test high enough. They're not going to taste right because of the high acidity. By the end of November, mandarins, Satsuma mandarins, are beginning to ripen. Um, I had someone ask me, if we sold tangerines. What's a tangerine? <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. Well, that well, was... What is a tangerine? I mean, I've heard the word, but I always thought it was a cross between like a grapefruit and orange or some, yeah. some exotic thing. I've not, tan- I mean, tangerine we never had tangerines. Yeah, I grew up with them. They were what was in the toe of the stocking on Christmas morning was a tangerine. And my grandfather just prized the dancy 
variety of tangerine, which was grown in Florida and Southern California. Very juicy, very sweet, rich flavor, easy to peel, but lots of seeds. So we had to go out and stand on the Dicondra lawn in Pasadena and spit the seeds at each other. We were not allowed to eat the tangerines in the house, even if we got up before the grandparents and went down to get the stockings and go through them, which we were allowed to do. We all knew that you take the tangerine outside and eat it out on the patio. Satsuma so, mandarins are seedless. Wait, 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 Don. You said that you got that when you were a kid in yeah. your in your. How come you got tangerines as a kid? <laughs> I never even heard of tangerines. Well, I, grew I up think in Backwood, Michigan, up by Canada. I mean, I, we I, we were doing really good if we got an imported orange. I think you just answered your question. You grew up in Michigan near Canada. <laughs> okay, so this is a specialty crop in Southern California and in Florida. The 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 dancy tangerine. Tangerines are a type of mandarin orange, just for the record uh the dancy tangerine has was was started originally in florida in the 18 when was it the 1860s or something yeah 1867 a seedling grown and found by colonel dancy uh it was brought in from tangiers morocco so tangiers is the source of the name tangerine in fact people say oh i thought it was called a tangerine because it's tangy well in fact it's more likely the word tangy which didn't show up in usage until the late 1800s comes from the fruit rather than the other way around. So the word tangy refers to a distinctively sharp taste, flavor, or odor as that of orange juice. And that's a direct quote from an online dictionary. So the tangerine shows up in the mid 1800s. Later in the 1800s, the word tangy shows up. Tangiers, Morocco was the source of the original seedling that is called Dancy. And it was very popular, very easy to peel, very sweet. Almost no dancy tangerines are grown in the United States anymore. I'm unaware of any commercial production of the dancy. Why? Because the Satsuma mandarin came along. Awari Satsuma is the most common form of Satsuma mandarin. It's when I grow. It's when I'm going to be planting a fair number of on my farm. Very popular because it ripens for the holidays, which from a commercial standpoint doubles its profit value right there. If you can harvest something for Thanksgiving or even better harvest something for the Christmas market and it's a citrus and it's from California or Florida, well, that's just a gold mine right there. And it is seedless. Satsuma mandarin, the Wari Satsuma mandarin and the other variants of Satsuma mandarin are typically seedless, which is extremely important to the consumer. If it's seedless, how do you grow more of them? Well, with citrus, they're generally grafted. All citrus that you buy, with a few exceptions, are grafted as other fruit trees are. So every one of them is a clone of a clone of a clone of a clone of the original one. Um, you can grow some citrus from seed, and some citrus comes true from seed, and some citrus does not. There are whole charts online you can find about that. If it's considered to be a natural or intentional hybrid, it is not going to come true from seed. But it's grown by either cuttings or grafting. Meyer lemons uh bear's lime mexican lime rangpur lime kefir lime are all grown from cuttings or typically you'll find them in garden centers on their own roots uh, they're just rooted cuttings whereas everything else washington navel blood oranges satsuma mandarins dancy tangerines and so on are grafted or budded onto a root stock that's how you propagate it so it's a clone of the original one that that dancy tangerine that you're eating if you happen to have one is from the same genetic material as the seedling that was imported in 1867. It's just a cutting of a cutting of a cutting of a cutting. Okay. And so my information that a tangerine was a, a, a cross from an orange and a grapefruit, it, is that true or, or do they not know? 
Uh, actually, if you're interested in plant taxonomy, uh, which is the study of the relationships and naming of plants, uh, if you want to work on something that's been the subject of considerable revision over the years, the genus citrus is your is a great choice. It is incredibly complicated because people have cultivated citrus forever, hundreds and hundreds of years. Obviously, if you happen to live in an area where something with this incredibly sweet, tangy, wonderful, juicy fruit is just naturally growing, you're going to work with that. You're going to cultivate it and propagate it. They also hybridize really easily. The grapefruit itself is thought to have been a naturally occurring hybrid from, I think it's Jamaica. When you bring different kinds of citrus in proximity to each other, many of them will cross readily. A seedling will grow. The seedling might have good fruit. And that's where many of our most desirable types of citrus come from. So the Meyer lemon is a good example. It's not a lemon. It is thought to be, nobody really knows since they've been growing it in China for hundreds of years before it was introduced to Europe and nobody really knew the parentage of it there. They found, you know, European plant collectors found it growing in pots on doorsteps in the 19th century in China. It is thought to be a cross between a mandarin and a lemon. And if you taste it, once you know that, and once you've been told that, you go, oh, yes, this does have more orange flavor than a true lemon, but it also has true lemon flavor. So as a naturally occurring hybrid, most likely, probably not intentionally done, more likely a naturally occurring hybrid, seeds of a Meyer lemon will not grow true. If you, if you save the seed from Meyer lemon, you can grow it. It's easy to grow. Several years later, it'll start fruiting. You won't have something that you particularly want to eat. It'll probably be bitter or too sour or something like that. Seeds of a real lemon, a true lemon, Eureka, Lisbon, Genoa, uh, any of the, the ones that are actual, what we might call sun-kissed brand type lemons, you know, a true lemon, seeds of those will grow true. So again, you have to wait several years. It's easy to do. It's not difficult. It's like growing an avocado pit. You know, you can start the seed and you grow the tree and you plant it out and you'll have a lemon that probably will be very true to type. It just takes several years. So that's the reason that commercial growers would bud or graft them in order to plant an orchard. They don't want to plant a bunch of seeds and not harvest for, you know, eight or 10 years before they get to an actual harvest. So that's a little complex, but if you want to grow seeds of citrus, try it. Some of them will grow and, may, and come true. Some will not. Well, this week is our fundraising week. And so I have a script that I'm supposed to read. You know, I can never do things straight, but I will try. Okay. Gathering Along the Grassroots Trail is the title of this little, little thing. It says, walking the grassroots trail with you is why we are here. We express our love for music and community when we broadcast to you. Can you contribute today to help maintain the grassroots trail? Go to kdrt.org slash donate to contribute. Again, that's kdrt.org slash donate. Any amount is appreciated. Now that's the official script. <laughs> okay. But here we go. Have you heard that KDRT, that's 95.7 in Davis, is where the grassroots grow? As a radio show host, I like to think that we are walking the grassroots trail together. And that trail needs a little upkeep before winter. So can you help us out? If so, please go to kdrt.org. You can sign up to make a small monthly donation, or you can donate whatever you want all at once. Any amount is appreciated. Again, that's kdrt.org slash donate. Great. And if you want to let us know where you're listening, info at kdrt.org. Let us know where you're listening to the Davis Garden Show or Jazz After Dark or That's Life or all the other great programming here at KDRT. So back, to, right. Mandarin, back to Mandarins for a moment. Um Yes, people will ask. People will ask, "What kind shall I plant?" 
you know, what does best here? Well, that's always a funny question. Uh, they all grow well here. This is a great place here in the Sacramento Valley to grow mandarins. In fact, Satsuma mandarins are grown over in the Rockland, Roseville, Loomis area, right near Sacramento, a little, just a little uphill from Sacramento where it just gets cold a little earlier. And those farmers learned years ago, although they take a little bit of a risk of frost injury, Mandarins are hardy, so it's not that big a risk. Satsuma mandarins are particularly hardy. They can go down to 20 degrees with no problem. And remember I mentioned how cold temperatures make the fruit sweeter. Well, they get cold there earlier. They get cold there early enough to harvest before Thanksgiving, which uh-huh. makes a very high profit crop for them. So for as long as I've been here, Newcastle, which is in the Roseville, Rockland area, has been the center of Mandarin production in the Sacramento Valley. They grow wonderful mandarins up there. They can ship them down here to the produce stands and the grocery stores, and they're real sweet by the middle of November. And I've got eight trees out there with hundreds of fruit on them. My kids would go out there to pick them, and they were still too sour because here in the Valley, we were still warm late in the season. We're recording this program in the fall of 2022. And this year, for the first time, we actually had frost early in November and we had several of them. We had a number of cold nights. I went out there and the fruit had colored up real nicely. Well, just remember fruit color, fruit rind color is not an indicator of ripeness of citrus, but it's a good starting point. So I picked one. They're great. They were ripe a good three, four weeks ahead of schedule. So for Mm -hmm. us, typically the Satsuma Mandarin in the Valley in sunset zone 14, sunset zones eight and nine, usually ripens in the month of December. So if I'm growing them for sale here, which I plan to be doing, I'm going to get the Christmas market. I'm not going to get the Thanksgiving market because we don't cool off fast enough most years. That is the classic Mandarin. Owari Satsuma is sweet and tart and juicy and peels easily. And you can pop the segments in your mouth and there's almost never any seeds in maybe one or two in a, in a total total satsuma mandarin orange and usually none but they're not to everybody's liking and the company that made the cuties mandarins and uh, that company it's sold smaller. off isn't it smaller it's a different variety they that's now owned by paramount and the company that started cuties makes the halos and you go into grocery stores and you see those year round so that's an interesting fact you see them year round first of all that means there's more than one variety in that program they did a lot of testing. They did a lot of consumer testing and particularly focus groups with children because they knew they were going to be marketing to moms, parents, I should say. And the market for kids is different than the market for the rest of us. I love citrus. I like a rich flavored, you know, the combination of acidity and sweetness. I really like that. Um, you hand that to a kid and they'll make a funny face very commonly. They'll pucker. They like the sweet, but they don't like the tart. They want candy. They want candy. Well, we don't need to be disrespectful here. They have different flavor profile preferences. Let's put it that way. They want candy. That's a different profile preference. And sitting at at fruit tastings, Dave Wilson put on, we were talking about stone fruits, but the difference in that room of 40, 50 people, how some people really preferred the very sweet and didn't want any acidity and other people wanted a more balanced flavor profile. Well, that applies to citrus as well. It turned out there were three things that really mattered to kids. They want to be able to peel it easily, all in one piece if possible. They like to pop the whole thing in their mouth and chew it up. So they didn't even like breaking it into segments. So it had to be small and they wanted it to be sweet, but not tart and absolutely had to be seedless. If, if citrus fruit has seeds in it, it's much lower value to a commercial grower. I know that sounds weird, but it's true that people, it's like watermelons. You know, the whole market has been taken over with the seedless variants because it's, I guess, just easier to eat. I certainly spent plenty of Christmas mornings spitting out mandarin seeds on the on the porch in, in Pasadena, but uh, evidently people aren't going to have that experience anymore. So they introduced the Clementine mandarin, which had been around for a long time. 
as cuties. And then the second one in that program is the Mercot, which is very similar to Clementine, ripens a month or so later. And after that is one called Tango, which ripens a month or so later. Of those three, Tango is naturally seedless. So if you're a home gardener, and you want a seedless mandarin, and you're not looking at the tangy one from November, December, you're looking at a midwinter mandarin or a late winter mandarin, you might prefer tango. It's naturally seedless. And it's in that program because they can grow them in a certain way to make the fruit smaller, which is one of the most unusual aspects of the whole cuties marketing program. It created a market for the fruit that usually were culled. In the past, very <laughs> small fruit was sent off to produce stands. These are too small. Nobody will buy these. Now they want the smaller fruit because of the ease of peeling and the whole thing with the kids. And um, they want them to be seedless. In order to get clementine seedless, they have to isolate them from other citrus trees. There's a big fight when the cuties program began developing. And the owner, the family that that is growing the cuties, same family that was growing the wonderful pomegranate uh, juice products that you see. These are their very large agribusiness firm. They didn't want any of those navel oranges in Fresno County cross-pollinating with their Satsuma, their, their Clementine mandarins. They couldn't have that because if they cross-pollinate, they get seed. And so they first they tried to get all the beekeepers to take their beehives away. You know, just take them away. I want we want a zone bee freeze around our citrus trees. That turned into a big argument and the California Department of Food and Ag had to intervene and figure out a way to settle that between them. Uh, more to the point, if you're driving down in the bloom season in April uh, through the, the valley, through Fresno, Kern, Tulare County, San Joaquin County, where most of these are grown, you'll see a whole lot of the trees covered with what looks like frost blanket. It probably is actually the same material as frost blanket. It's not there in April to keep frost off the flowers. It's in there in April to keep bees off the flowers, to keep the bees from cross-pollinating from the nearby 100-year-old navel orange orchards that have been there since you know time immemorial and uh, prevent the seed set in the clementines. So if you grow clementine in your backyard, high likelihood it will have seeds. It's still a very good citrus. What people like about it, it's got a nice crisp texture. Again, it's easy to peel. It's very sweet. It's not tart. It's just sweet. And uh, it's actually got a, a, a wonderful um, depth of flavor compared to some of the other citrus, but it's not as intensely flavored as Satsuma mandarins. And I do find that Satsumas are, I'm going to say, more of a grown-up taste, I guess, than Clementines, Mercot, and Tango. So if you like the cuties, you can grow that equivalent in your backyard by getting one of those three. If you did all three, you would have Clementines in January, Mercot in February, Tango March to April. If you then went out and got a gold nugget, that ripens April into the early summer. And if you had a Satsuma mandarin, which ripens in late November and December, you would have the potential of picking mandarins from your backyard from November through early summer, just by having three or four different varieties that ripen at different times. You don't have to worry about the cross-pollination. Seeds are fine. The flavor will be great. They're easy to peel. It's all that kind of thing. But you And these are also very easy to manage the size. Mandarins are slower growing, tighter, smaller trees. So they're like a big shrub that you can have in your backyard. You can make a hedge of four or five mandarin trees and be picking really high quality mandarins for almost nine months of the year. So you earlier said that Newcastle was really great because they got colder than mm -hmm. we did. And so their fruit was sweeter when they picked Early. it. Than sweeter earlier. Sweeter, sweeter earlier. earlier. Yeah. So um, do we get cold enough to make those things sweet in the backyard? 
Yes, it just happens in December, not November. So that's the difference. We could always pick Mandarin. We're picking Mandarins like crazy right now. And you could always pick Mandarins for Christmas. Uh, it's just that they they get a two to three week lead on the season, which just happens to time really effectively with Thanksgiving holiday. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And there's so a lot of other... There's a lot of new mandarins out there. There's um, the University of California introduced three different varieties, Shasta Gold, Yosemite Gold, Tahoe Gold. Those are all ripening at different times. Generally, these are seedless varieties that are being introduced nowadays. Gold Nugget, I do want to mention, it's fairly new in the trade. Every taste trial that it is in, it wins. So it is said to have really rich flavor. Now, I don't know how you would do a taste trial of a Gold Nugget, which ripens in April, May, with a Satsuma Mandarin, which ripens in November. <laughs> so you just have to be very systematic about your, your flavor profile notations. But uh, Gold Nugget, a very common comment in taste trials is best Mandarin ever. Uh, very common. And that's a late season. That's very late for mandarins to be coming off the tree. I like to mention them because I consider them one of the easiest home garden citrus. They're cold hardy enough. They can go down to the Satsuma can go, might have gone to 18 degrees and not been injured. Low 20s are no problem with most of the mandarins. By comparison, you know, other oranges may be injured at, say, 25 degrees. The other thing that I really like about them for a home gardener is they're naturally small. They're very bushy and they're very attractive. They're very compact plants. My 30 plus year old Satsumas that I've never pruned are about 15 by 15 on a fairly slow growing rootstock. The ones I took the center out of about five or six years in are about eight feet tall by 10 feet. And they are dense and solid and have, you know, three, 400 fruit on each tree. So they're very attractive. And it's a, they only need deep watering fairly infrequently. They're not a high water crop compared to some other fruit species. So citrus, if for a home gardener, relatively drought tolerant, you're not concerned about size on a mandarin. You're not trying to get really big fruit. So even if there's a little drought stress in the fruit expansion phase, you'll just have smaller fruit. It doesn't really affect the quality particularly. So even in a drought emergency, you can get, you can water less, water deeper and less often and still get very good quality fruit. So you don't have to worry about covering them. You can pick them over a long period of time. Of all the ones we've talked about, the, the diciest one is that Satsuma because it has a softer peel. And so if something happens like hail, uh, rain in January, if my, my fruit are still on the tree, we have any kind of hail or, or wind where the fruit are brushing against the thorns on the tree, they'll get injured very quickly and they will spoil. So it can be a problematic crop from a commercial or agricultural standpoint. But those other varieties have tighter, tougher skin. So if you're concerned about that, any of the clementine group or the dancy or something like that are going to be are going to be less susceptible to weather damage. So they don't need any special fertilizers or anything. I have heard something about mandarins do alternate bearing. What is alternate bearing and, and how does that work? Very strongly, yes. And the Satsuma, unfortunately, the highest value one is the most most susceptible to it. Various fruit trees, for reasons that are gradually becoming better understood, go very strongly into an alternate bearing pattern where they'll set heavy crops one year and very light crops the next year. And some are famous for it. Apricots, pecans, Satsuma mandarins my persimmon, my Fuyu persimmon. Uh, you'll have a year where there's so many fruit, you don't know what to do with them all. And the next year you'll have 20% as, as many fruit. And I'm in a high crop year on the Satsuma mandarins. By just a quick grid count, each of my older trees has about 500 mandarins on it. And I have eight trees so uh, last I could, I could take some of those down yeah we're bringing them into the nursery okay. they're usually there by the counter so uh, whereas last <laughs> year each tree had about 100 fruit i mean for a home gardener 100 fruit is great but that wild difference has been phenomenal and persimmons by the way my fuyu had zero 
this year and last year had hundreds. They're very strongly alternate bearing. From an agricultural standpoint, that can be a real problem. Obviously, if you're, you know, if your revenues are wildly fluctuating that year, and there's things that are done in terms of spraying gibberellins or or just removing fruit in a heavy fruit crop year, you know, heavily heavily fruit thinning in a year where it looks like a heavy fruit crop year, that is one option. The other is just to ride with it. You know, this is one of the reasons I'm not, I'm not planting five acres of Satsuma mandarins. I'm planting some Satsumas and some Clementines and some Mercot and some of the others, because all the others are less prone to alternate bearing than the Satsuma mandarin. It just happens to be a very high value crop. And the Shiranui, the one that you all know as Sumo, which is now finally becoming available to home gardeners as a tree in the next year or so, very strong tendency towards alternate bearing as well. On that alternate bearing stuff, can you arrange it so uh, one tree you plant at a certain time and it gets into its alternate bearing cycle, but another tree, if you planted a different year, would have the opposite cycle? Or do they tend to go, everything's, all Satsumas are, are heavy in one season and light the next year? It's the latter. That is the problem. It doesn't matter when you plant it. It's something seems to spark the cycle and then they stay in that. And the only way to get it out of the cycle of alternate bearing, as I say, is to remove fruit in a heavy crop year, which farmers, of course, are reluctant to do and home gardeners are reluctant to do. Um, they don't really know uh, that much about alternate bearing, although there's greater understanding. It, it appears to be a hormonal thing triggered by the formation of seeds or the or the things that would be seeds if there were seeds uh, causing the plant to go into a rest cycle. And it is very pronounced in some species and some cultivars. So there's not much you can do about it, although it is an interesting fact that some fortunes were made here in the Sacramento Valley near Davis. Dr. Wixon, or I don't know if he was a doctor, but a gentleman named Wixon, who has a hall named after him on campus, was well known in the pomology fruit tree department. Apricots were a very, very, very profitable crop here in the Sacramento Valley when refrigerated rail cars came into existence. They could grow apricots here in the winters, Vacaville, Davis, Dixon area, put them on the refrigerated rail cars and ship them to New York in May or early June. They ripen very early here and get a fortune, a fabulous rate of return on these as long as they could ship them carefully. But they tended to be very strongly alternate bearing. So he took the gamble and heavily pruned or heavily thinned his trees in the year when all the other farmers had a heavy crop year, he cut his crop. And that meant next year, he had all the fruit. <laughs> and he is made that, all the money. Is that, is that true that pruning a tree will uh, shock it into uh, switching its alternate bearing year? You'd want to prune carefully. Removing fruit is a different matter. So you may be doing some pruning to remove fruit. You're doing basically heavy fruit thinning. We always recommend ah. fruit thinning. Yes, you, you could prune. Unfortunately, if you pruned really hard, that would probably stimulate vigorous new growth at the expense of fruit production. So it would be perhaps counterproductive unless you were very, very careful about it. But fruit removal, you just get up there and knock off a whole lot of the fruit in what looks like a heavy fruit crop year. He managed to stagger his crops alternately with the other farmers in the area. Very profitable. He became quite wealthy. And as I say, there's a building named after him, the UC Davis campus. So he he reversed the alternate bearing in his orchards and managed to make a fortune that way. All right. Um, so we have a lot of questions that come in all the time. And then there's sometimes when there's not very many. And this is the middle of winter. Well, I think it's winter. Don says it's still fall. Mm -hmm. But uh, what, what do people... What do you want people to be thinking about now that they're not out in the garden planting and doing their usual summer stuff? What should we be doing now? Should we be planning 
should we be planting winter things? Is it well, too late? Is it too early? This is when seed catalogs arrive, and I already have several on my desk. And this is when you go through and you start making plans for which tomato varieties and pepper varieties you're going to grow next year. And if you've been careful and jotted down your results from this year, and this is where Facebook groups or social groups can be very helpful because people can trade you know, trade results to talk about how things went for them in their garden this particular year. Start planning for next year. If you're going to be doing things from seed, peppers need to start in January. Uh, tomatoes start February to March. And so you start getting into the planning process now for what you're going to grow for next year. Now, garden centers, of course, will have plants of those things, but not all the unusual varieties. So there's several tomato varieties, for example, that we will be growing and selling. But I know that commercial big retailers won't have access to them because they're simply not something that's in the regular channels, like bodacious tomato, phenomenal beefsteak type tomato that actually produces well in the high temperature valley here. Um, it's really expensive seed from a commercial standpoint. They're not going to do it. A packet is, I don't know, eight dollars or something. You know, they want seed where they're buying it by the pound and they can get large quantities of it. So you may need to plan now for what you're going to be growing next year or what you're going to harass your local garden center to stock next year. And in our case, that might be as simple as saying, I really want that tomato you were talking about. I sure hope you're going to have some seedlings. Can you notify me when they're ready? And we go, yes, we're happy to do that. Bodacious is a very good example. And there's probably a half dozen tomato varieties that we'll be selling, growing and selling. But you also, December, January, can look in seed catalogs and find it's a keeper from seeds and such. Bodacious from Burpee. Um, let's see, what was the other one? Rugby, uh, which is from Johnny's Selected Seed. Those are three we're going to be really promoting because they've done very, very well for us. But you may be listening someplace where you can't stop by my garden center or you're not, you don't know, you know where it's going to be available. You got to find them online and get that seed now. I can tell you now there are going to be seed shortages of a couple of popular varieties. Juliet, again, seed shortage this year. So you might want to try and find the seed now before everybody hops on there and starts buying it. There is some out there, but not much. Early Girl, probably going to be in short supply this year. Don't fret about that one. This seems to panic people. Early Girl is a wonderful tomato, and I highly recommend it. I'm sure garden centers will have Early Girl tomatoes, but the seed is already sold out at a number of sites I've looked at. New Girl is really good. And that's a Johnny's variety, I'm pretty sure. New Girl is one you should be able to find that now I have three years of experience with it. It has been one of my top yielding, earliest yielding, latest yielding, highest quality tomatoes each of those three years. I wait two years before I recommend a variety, three years with this one, it's been solid each time. So New Girl might be a good alternative to Early Girl if you just want to get away from being relying on a seed variety that isn't consistently going to be out there necessarily. We'll certainly talk more about those things as we get into January, but right now is a good time to think back on what did well, think back on what didn't do well. By the way, if you've had an experience with something like that, send us a note, davisgardenshow at gmail.com. This was my best tomato this year. I've never seen yields like it before. This one was a complete dud. I never. I got three fruit on a 12-foot vine. We want that feedback. And uh, again, as I say, I don't judge a tomato on one season, but it's useful to get the feedback. And then I do a second, even a third. Something yields poorly for three years in a row. Okay, I'm not going to recommend it in the Sacramento Valley. If it yields well three years in a row, that can go on to my roster. We talk a lot on this show about microclimates. And I'm thinking that can carry over into things other than plants. Like, I don't know, this radio station. What do you think? What, what about our radio station? Is your room well, cold? <laughs> it's, a, it's a microclimate and, and it is protected by the overhang of people who care about it and give it money. 
Isn't this our isn't this our fundraising? <laughs> I think we should have probably rehearsed this a little better, but I love that segue. So I'm gonna jump right in there. That was great, Lois. <laughs> hey, you know what? We've been on the air for 18 years. KDRT has. I think we have too from the very start from here at Davis Garden Show. And um we're celebrating 18 years, and that means that we are asking for you folks during this week of fundraising to head on over to kdrt.org slash donate. Cater.org slash donate. And during this week, this is uh, November, I don't know, what is it, November 28th through December 5th, we would love to have you go in and give whatever you can to help keep the station on the air. We only are looking for $7,000 during this fundraising period. We can do that with no problem. If all of you who enjoy Davis Garden Show, That's Life, Jazz After Dark, or any of the other 29 independently produced programs here at KDRT, any of them, this is what keeps them on the air. Your money goes directly to fund our operating costs. So whether it's Music, local talk, national news program, we broadcast to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And today we're just asking for a little financial support. You can donate online. Again, that's kdrt.org slash donate to help, help keep the creativity running in our roots. It's grassroots radio, <laughs> kdrt.org, 95.7 FM, broadcasting locally all the way to the city limits and broadcasting worldwide at kdrt.org. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California. Mm-hmm.